You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. John chapter 2, and Greg Watke is going to read scripture for us. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thank you, Greg, for reading for us. Well, what a week of watching spring arrive. It was great. I saw many signs of it. Did any of you get your motorcycle out? I saw a few on the road. Some still waiting for more rain to wash all the gravel off. I saw the Twins open the season, and they're winning. They even beat the Yankees in New York twice, which was awesome. And I even got to drive again with the truck windows down, which was just a great feeling. Open up the vehicle. It was through that massive construction zone on Highway 10, another sign of spring in Minnesota. But by far my favorite, when I think of the signs of spring, would be wildlife. And without even trying this week, I saw in Elk River and around our house up in Zimmerman, I saw turkeys strutting around, and I saw deer on the move, and squirrels were out and about again, Canadian geese, sandhill cranes, robins, woodpeckers, and a whole bunch of songbirds, and the frogs. We live near some water, like a pond, and the frogs started to chirp again. And we even pulled the first wood tick off one of our kids, which is not a favorite, but definitely a sign of spring. So it was a glorious week. We played a lot outside, and it came just in time for another series of signs, and that is the focus of our message series. We just celebrated Easter last weekend, and as we were here together, we were in John's Gospel, And the next seven weeks through Memorial Day, we're just going to stay right here in John and study what are called the seven signs of John. And here's where that phrase comes from. In his writing on the life and teachings of Jesus, John seems to set the narrative to build it on seven of the signs and miracles that Jesus did. The purpose of Jesus' miracles are not just pure displays of power, like, look what Jesus can do, but it's more than that. One writer put it this way, a sign is a significant display of power that points beyond itself to deeper realities 
that can be perceived with eyes of faith. So, we are here for the first of seven signs today, and also seeing that Jesus did these for a reason, not just to impress. And John wrote about them for a reason, and he tells us towards the end of his gospel, flat out, the reason for his writing. It's in John 20. We read part of this last Sunday on Easter, but we'll add a little bit more now. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why did Jesus perform signs? That you may believe. And why did John write them down? That you may believe. And to believe does not mean some mental exercise of just thinking a thought. But to believe is active. It is rational, but it's also relational. And it means things like, this would be from the Amplified Version, a wonderful definition. It says, to adhere to, trust in, and rely on. And that's why you and I, for the next seven weeks, are going to study the seven signs of John. To see that happen in our own life. To adhere to Jesus. To stick to Him like glue. To have greater trust in Him. And to rely on Him for everything that we could ever need. That's what it means to believe. But even believing, you'll notice in that verse from John 20, is not the end goal. Look what it says. It says, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's the end goal. Believing leads to having life. So let's go to this wedding in Cana over the next few minutes. I love this story. I've never preached on this passage, actually. That's a first today. But I love this story. There's something that's so down-to-earth about it. You know, attending a wedding. And something goes wrong at the reception. It's so normal. If we had time, I could tell you some great wedding stories about things that go wrong. <laughs> Another thing that makes this story stand out is that there is no teaching that accompanies the miracle, which we'll often see in John. Something happens, and then Jesus teaches on it, or there's some explanation. And we don't have that here. It speaks for itself. And yet we're also invited to look for clues in the text. So in one sense, Jesus turning water into wine stands alone as a supernatural act that points to Jesus' divinity. That's true. But why a wedding? And why water jars. And what about the wine? These are all significant details that point to something even more. And so that's what we're going to explore today. Some of this I'll simply retell. It's just a wonderful story to tell around a campfire. Some of it we'll put up on the screen. We'll be able to see some of the verses. And of course, you have your Bible in front of you. So it starts simple enough. The first verse on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Cana. Some of you have visited that place when you've been to the Holy Lands. Cana was a small town nine miles north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And it says that a wedding took place there on the third day. Now, especially so close to Easter, we hear the third day and we think Easter. We remember that story. But this time marker is not Easter related. It is simply counting the days since what happened prior to it in John chapter 1. In John 1, we see Jesus begin His public ministry 
And John reports what happened from day to day. So in those stories in John 1, he'll say, and the next day Jesus went here. And the next day he did this. So the interesting thing about this, though, is when you track the timeline through John 1 and into chapter 2, the wedding in Cana occurs on the seventh day. And that is meant to catch our attention. Because the number seven in the Bible often represents completeness or wholeness, fullness. And this goes all the way back to Genesis and the creation story where God created the earth in six days. And it says that then on the seventh day, he rested. Not that God was tired, but modeling this. The work is done. It's complete. So ever since Genesis, seven carries this number throughout the Bible. And when you combine that with this particular story where you have water turned into wine at a wedding feast on the seventh day, it's just begging for us to make the connection to the messianic age. And that's just a fancy way of saying the culmination of this whole story. And you go to the book of Revelation when the fullness of time is at hand. For you and I, we think to when Jesus returns, we have imagery of the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that is all in view here for John. So we'll come back to some of that in a bit. But now we see the scene is set. We're at a wedding. It's a small town in Galilee called Cana. And then we get to the guest list. It says, first of all, that Jesus' mother was there and that Jesus and his disciples were also invited. Now, we don't know whose wedding this was, but when you put together that Mary is there and has this apparently prominent role and then Jesus is there, this was very likely a relative or a close friend of theirs. And as for the disciples, if we do the math from chapter 1, we know there would have been five at this point. So we're working our way towards 12, but there's five. Back in chapter 1, Jesus is traveling around and he's calling disciples to follow him. And so far we've got Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and then one unnamed disciple in John 1.35 that is very likely John, the writer of this gospel. And so there they are, they're at this wedding, and disaster strikes. Mary comes to Jesus and says... They have no more wine. And wouldn't you just love to be a fly on the wall to watch this conversation play out? She says they have no more wine. Now we have to know a little bit more about first century Judaism to understand the full weight of what she has just said. And we point this out from time to time. It comes up so often in Bible stories that unlike our own culture, which is a strong individual culture, they were in a strong group culture that was defined by honor and shame. And there's still many cultures today that are like this. Whether you were to travel to Japan or you'd be in parts of the Middle East, you would run into this. So for us, you know, if we were at a wedding and they ran out of wine at the bar, you know, it would be a bummer, but life goes on, right? I mean, nobody would think about it too much. In their culture, running out of wine at a wedding would bring enormous shame on the host family. And that would be specifically the groom's family. And to be shamed in their culture, to fall from honor, to be disgraced in this way, would be about the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And in this instance, it could have even opened up the groom's family to lawsuits 
from the aggrieved bride's family. That's how serious of a matter this was. So Mary is extremely alarmed when she finds out there's no more wine. And we don't know, how did she have sort of the inside scoop on this before word gets out? She maybe, because it was family, would have had some role with the catering team as they're serving. But somehow she becomes aware there's no more wine. She comes to her son Jesus. We think probably Joseph has long since passed away, so Jesus is her eldest son. And she comes to Jesus, and that's all she has to say is, they've run out of wine. And Jesus would have immediately understood the gravity of the situation. But what does he say? He says, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Now that address, woman, we talked about last week in the Easter story. You'll remember with Mary Magdalene in the garden. And we pointed out last week it's not rude. It it sounds that way in English, but it was really a form of courtesy that we might equate to ma'am is really what it means. But you'll notice, you know, if you're to say ma'am to somebody, there's some distance there, isn't it? It's polite, it's respectful, but who do you say ma'am to? I mean, it's probably less common now than it would have been 50 years ago, but you'd say it to somebody who is in a position of authority or to an elder or to someone who maybe is in a service position and helping you with something. So what is Jesus doing by calling his own mother ma'am? He is putting some distance between himself and Mary, his mother. Now, does that mean that he wasn't affectionate or didn't love or honor her like a son should? By no means. We won't want to jump to that conclusion. But especially as Jesus now begins his public ministry, there is a shift that happens. All right, so Mary cannot merely relate to Jesus as her adult son. She can't just take this inside track as Jesus' mother to relate to him, but she must learn too to relate to him as her Savior. And so Jesus provides this gentle rebuff that he has a greater task to tend to. And there is a purpose that he is sent to fulfill, and that is to do the will of his heavenly Father. And even family ties, even the bond between son and mother has to be subordinate to that divine mission. Jesus isn't just Mary's son. He is first and foremost God's son. That's what's going on between the lines of this exchange. And so Jesus says to her in this moment, in the face of this huge problem, he says, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. And we see Jesus throughout the Gospels with this keen awareness of timing. Especially early on in his ministry, he knows that to avoid some huge dramatic thing that would speed up the cross, he kind of has to pump the brakes, especially early on in the Gospels. His glory is to be revealed in measure, and he's got work to do. So Jesus rebukes Mary, and then look at how she responds. And I just think this is wonderful. You know, Mary is upheld in Scripture for her faith. We only have four scenes, by the way, where Jesus interacts specifically with Mary. But this is just wonderful. She doesn't drop it, does she? She's not even going to talk with her son now. She's going to talk to the servants. She turns to the wait staff and she says, do whatever he tells you. 
She's heard her son. She does not disagree with him, but she doesn't give up. Mary is tenacious and clever. Reminds me of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, another wonderful story. And like the Canaanite woman, she has this persevering kind of faith. She has no clue what Jesus is going to do. Will he do anything? She doesn't know. She certainly doesn't know the outcome of the situation. But she holds on to the fact that we should do whatever he says. And you and I learn so much about faith from Mary. And just by way of application, let's pause here to think about this. I would just guess there's a situation, probably without exception for every one of us here, including me, where you don't know the outcome. There's a problem that you're facing right now. There is a particular challenge that you have. And you don't know the outcome. And and what does Mary do in this situation? She brings it to the Lord. She commits it to Him entirely. And she trusts Him with however it will work out. Do whatever He tells you. I want to have that kind of faith, don't you? I want to have a do-whatever-He-tells-you kind of faith that perseveres when I don't know what to do. So the story continues. Mary just kind of leaves it with Jesus, and then we move to verse 6. It says, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So they start to do some of the measurements for us, and you might have a footnote there too in your Bible. These are big standing stone containers 20 to 30 gallons each, you know, roughly it's like six bathtubs, up to 180 gallons. And what they were used for, these six stone water jars, they were used for ceremonial washings that are prescribed in the Old Testament of the Bible. So there were certain things that you had to do to ensure that you were clean, like washing your hands. We just had in our kids' story time. How do you get ready for dinner? You wash your hands. And so there were these ceremonial washings for different situations. And sometimes it was just the hands. And sometimes it was more like a sponge bath. Like you had to get your whole body washed up and clean. And you did this in order to present yourself before the Lord. But the thing was, you had to return again and again to these stone jars for washing and cleaning yourself up. And in the context of a wedding, scholars believe that they maybe would have even like cleanse the wedding utensils, like sort of use it as holy water to get ready for this sacred event. So that's the idea. Ceremonial washing was to be cleansed of sin, to make something ordinary, holy, and to make it ready for God. So Jesus sees these jars and he says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Mary said, do whatever he tells you. He says, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. I underlined it. You think there's something significant when it says they filled them to the brim? Absolutely. Jesus is about to show that the time of ceremonial washings, this way of having to come before God, is completely fulfilled in Him. This returning again and again to... Get yourself cleaned up before the Lord. Those days are fulfilled. There is something new and better 
that is happening. Jesus tells the servants to draw from these stone jars and to take a sample to the master of the banquet, the head chef, the maitre d'. And he takes a sip, not knowing any of this backstory. It's so like Jesus that the servants know. He let them in on it. Nobody else knows. So he tastes this water that has now turned into wine, and it stops him in his tracks. I mean, he's the master of the banquet. I mean, this isn't his first rodeo. I imagine he put on a lot of lavish weddings, but this stops him in his tracks. And I don't know if you could think whatever kind of beverage it was, all of us could answer this question, but what was like the fanciest drink that you ever had? Maybe you could call that to mind. One of my first jobs in high school was I worked at a restaurant. There was one night when someone ordered a certain kind of wine, and I went back and I opened a bottle, but it was the wrong one. Now, this mistake was compounded by this. Not only did I open the wrong bottle, but it was a bottle that we only sold by the bottle. So now we couldn't even really use it to sell it by the glass. It was a $100 bottle of wine that I had opened. It was an expensive mistake. So think about what's the fanciest thing that you ever tasted, that you ever opened. The master of the banquet tastes this sample that the servants brought, and he's just blown away. I mean, just the flavor in his mouth. What do they call that in the wine world? Bouquet? Is that right? I mean, just incredible. And he goes off to find the groom, and he says to the groom, this is remarkable. I mean, this is a showstopper. Everybody else gives out the best, expensive stuff first. And then when everybody's already had a few, that's when you kind of shift to the more affordable wine. But you, he says, you have saved the best till now. There's no explanation of this miracle. Right? This is where now you'd expect it. You've saved the best till now. There's no explanation given. No pause for Jesus' teaching But the teaching is in the story, and you and I are invited to lean in and read between the lines. What this is saying to you and I, in the ordinary, old, stuck ways of our life, is that Jesus is here to bring a new and better way. I love how D.A. Carson put it in one of my favorite John commentaries. He says, The wine Jesus supplies is unqualifiedly superior. I don't know about you. I'm happy to just speak for myself and reflect on this. I find myself just going back to old water far too often. Trying to do things on my own. Trying to wash myself up. Trying to get right with God. And I'm returning to this old water and these old jugs again and again, and it never works. It's never permanent. It's not a complete fix. And when Jesus comes and He brings the kingdom of God to bear on your life, old water's got to go. And it's turned into new wine. We see the imagery of wine so why is this the first sign? Why a wedding and, you know, and why the wine? We asked that question, didn't we? We see the imagery of wine all over the Old Testament as a sign of God's presence, the fullness of His kingdom. 
The Messianic age, His blessing, His grace. Amos 9, I could show you various passages, but this is a good one from Amos 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. What's that saying? It's harvest time, right? New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. So Jesus comes not just to do miracles and wow the crowd, but He comes specifically to set us free. To bring us back from the exile that keeps us distant from God. The exile of sin. And He turns 180 gallons, six bathtubs of old water into the finest wine that you would have ever tasted. That's what he does. He makes old things new. He makes broken people whole. He makes ordinary earthen pots into treasured vessels. And it all leads somewhere, and that is to your faith. This whole story leads to your faith. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory. So now it's begun, hasn't it? And His disciples believed in Him. What did they do? What do you do with this story? They believed. And by believing... They had life in His name, John 20. They had new wine. They had a whole new way of living. And perhaps nobody summed this up better than Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, you could stamp this over the whole story, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new has come. Oh, my friends, I don't know about you, I'm kind of done with snow, and I even like snow. But I'm ready for something new. Time for new creation. Time for life. And maybe that's where you're at today, as you've taken in this story about Jesus and the wedding at Cana. Maybe you're saying, yeah, I've been doing old stuff for a long time now, and I can't get free of it. It's time for something new. A better way. A far superior way, and that is the way of Jesus, who invites us to come to Him, to commit to Him, to believe in Him, and to trust Him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the power of Your Word, and that this story happened. This is a real-life event. And that you inspired John to record it for us, to write it down, and that you have preserved it for us in your word. And I pray, Lord, that this story would just spring to life for us and we would be seeing things right now in this story that we didn't know were there. And we would see things in our own life, Lord, that just have to go, that have to come under your sovereign reign, that have to come under the kingdom way, and that You have new and better wine for us in this life. 
I pray, Lord, just like those first disciples, that we would be here not just to observe this scene, but to believe in you. To place our full trust and confidence in you as our Savior and Lord. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. And we ask this in that same name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.